Do you have your own passion project that you'd like to turn into a podcast? Let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. Anchor is what I use to produce this podcast, and it's kind of amazing. It makes everything super easy. I am not the most tech-savvy person, and Anchor makes everything running this podcast pretty seamless. It's a free app that lets you edit, record, upload, produce, and distribute your podcast all from one place. You can do everything from adding in ads to make money to getting the podcast pushed out to all your different podcast um, apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, all right within Anchor. You can also even add in music from Spotify, which is a new feature that I haven't played around with, with much and is very exciting. And again, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So to learn a little bit more and get started, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss training concepts, interview behavior experts, and explore how to deepen the relationships between dogs and their people. Today's episode includes myself, Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward in Boulder, Colorado, and I am joined by my lovely co-hosts. I'm Ursa Acri, a co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training, which is a remote online training business and located in Missoula, Montana. So today's episode, we're going to do rapid fire myth busting of some of the really common challenges that get in the way of most pet parents. So Ursa and Kayla are going to be myth busting the questions I ask. So the first question is for Kayla. So my dog's uh, tail is wagging. Doesn't that always mean that he or she is happy? No. <laughs> uh, How come? Um, no. Uh, so yeah, we, we, we came up with this one when we were talking about, well, the dog's tail was wagging right before he bit or right before he attacked the other dog. Um, and tail wags are, a, it's a varied set of communications. Um, you can look at the looseness of the tail wag, the speed, the altitude of the tail um, or the angle of the tail to all give you more information. So a really high, stiff kind of TikTok tail wag um, is going to mean something really different from that really full body sweeping wag that hits the dog from ear to ear. Um, and yeah, it, basically a tail wag, it can indicate arousal and excitement. Um, and that is not always a good thing. So tail wags are not always happy dogs. I always say it's kind of like um, if you were to say they were smiling, I don't know why they mugged me. Yeah. <laughs> That's a like, really good analogy. I anyone who's ever seen any movie with a villain in it knows like the villain is smiling at the, mm -hmm. their like climax scene where they're yeah. just about to get the good guy. Like smile is just a communication about an emotional state. It doesn't necessarily mean that the intentions of the dog are friendly. Absolutely. So. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll add about yeah. tail wags, because um, this is supposed to be rapid fire, is you also need to know the na natural tail set of your dog. So a tucked mm -hmm. tail in a husky is going to look very different from a neutral tail or it's going, it's going to look very different from a neutral tail and a tucked tail in a husky might still be higher than a neutral tail in a sighthound. Um, mm -hmm. So when we say that like this high stiff tail wag is often kind of bad news, that's going to look really different between different breeds. And if you've got a dog with a docked tail or a naturally bobbed tail, 
you just have to look at even more information. But generally, yes, if you've got that really nice full body sweeping wag that's going from ear to ear, generally that's going to be okay. But it doesn't mean that your dog isn't being rude because sometimes there we see these dogs that are doing this really nice full body tail wag, but bum rushing another dog or a mountain biker or whatever, they can still get themselves in trouble even if their tail is wagging and their intentions are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's look at the whole context, mm-hmm. not just the tail. Mm-hmm. But I think when we're walking dogs, that's the one thing we see from our, the opposite end of how we're walking them on leash. <laughs> so it makes sense that we're, that's our barometer, but we got to look at all things. So the next question, because we really can't do rapid fire, but we're going to stick and try because the three of us love to talk. (laughs) Um, The next question is for Ursa. So I have a Husky and so, which I don't really, but let's say I have a Husky. Um, I don't think he can be trained the same way that like you can train a golden, right? Is that true? Rubbish. (laughs) <laughs> Rubbish. We need like a buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have a husky. I actually have a husky Malamute Chow mix, which might be the three most quote unquote untrainable breeds according to a layperson, right? Um, mm-hmm. And he is exceptionally well trained. He's a great dog. Um, not just because I'm a dog trainer, it's because all breeds saying um, this breed can't be trained with positive reinforcement is the same as saying this breed isn't willing to work for the things that it wants, or this breed isn't motivated by getting the things that it wants. And that's just simply not true. We would never say that about a person. This person doesn't, is, is, can't be bothered to get what they want. So the difference, I think the, where this myth originated is that people who don't understand positive reinforcement training have this idea that it's just waving a treat in front of the dog, right? And um, if the dog isn't interested in the treat, well, positive reinforcement training doesn't work. Well, that's a really simplified, um, watered down view of what positive reinforcement training is. And it's actually much more nuanced than that. And it's about finding what motivates that dog. And that could be different. It is different between individual dogs, not just breeds. So of course, because breeds are selected for consistency, um, your likelihood of finding dogs of the same breed that are motivated by the same thing is pretty high, but that doesn't take into account the fact that dogs are individuals just like humans. And so even though, um, you know, my Husky might be really, really food motivated. He is, he's super food motivated. Um, somebody else's Husky might not care that much about food and they might want to chase, they might want to chase things. And so it's about finding what motivates your dog, regardless of breed, your specific dog and making access to that thing contingent on the behaviors that you're looking for. That's positive reinforcement training. And it works with anything with a brain. So doesn't matter the breed, doesn't matter the species. If they have ganglia, (laughs) (laughs) to rub together positive reinforcement training works so yeah and i do think it's important yeah yeah very well said um and that doesn't mean it's always going to be super easy um Mm -hmm. you know there's a reason that we see a lot of dog trainers and especially like agility competitors we all have border collies um you know (laughs) i i'm i think we all know i'm a border collie freak um and there's a reason I like them. Uh, there are things that I like to do with my dogs and things that I like to do with my life that 
would be more challenging if I were to bring home kind of your stereotypical chow. I also don't want to brush any dog nearly that much. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, there are breed tendencies and these are going to be harder. You know, if you've got a dog that's bred to run and make life altering decisions on its own, like a husky, you know, they're not going to go forward across a lake if they're going to plunge through. That's what they've been bred to do. They're bred to run. They're bred to take care of themselves. They're bred not to be incredibly ravenous all of the time because you can't run the Iditarod if you're getting distracted by every single scent all the time. Um, <laughs> that's going to be very different from a Border Collie that's been bred to respond to the slightest twitch of a sheep's ear and the whistle from a shepherd and to work nonstop in close consort with their shepherd. It's going to be different. So yeah, you you can train everything with positive reinforcement. You can train everything the way that we want to train, but you're going to have to think harder with some breeds and think outside the box. And what yeah, with, motivates, a, Oh, sorry. I was going to say really quick, what motivates a dog? Um, you have, you need to be able to, um, operationalize that in your training. So if your dog really wants to run out and kill little vermin, um, how do you recreate that as a reinforcer and, and be able to use it in your training? That can be tough. So yeah. Uh, Marissa, what were you going to add? No, I was going to say like, this is what makes training as a positive reinforcement trainer really fun and creative. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to think outside the box, then yeah, I can see how this could get rather frustrating pretty quickly. Um, but I appreciate how we, in our community, we can call upon each other and say, Hey, I'm really challenged. I'm not really finding the reinforcer I need. What are your thoughts? And we can have this great dialogue about, um, being creative in coming up with the reinforcers that we need to motivate behavior. So absolutely. I, and some dogs are lazy and have shorter attention spans and we just have to adjust to deal with yeah, that. That's fine. To adjust and have one. Okay. So this is one of my favorite questions. Um, so this is for Kayla. So if my dog doesn't like other dogs or if he doesn't like people, shouldn't I just consistently expose him to the trigger that makes him upset and that will make things better? Maybe, but not really. <laughs> um, so this, this myth is, uh, you know, it's, I kind of summarize it as exposure will always make things better. Um, and it's, Unfortunately, not quite true. Um, there are basically three things that can happen if you continually expose an animal or a person, and humans are animals, um, to something that makes us uncomfortable. Um, and that can be habituation, um, desensitization, or sensitization. So um, depending on, and it's, it's really, really difficult to predict which is going to happen. There's a really cool study that I will dig up for the show notes where they did this with kittens, where they exposed kittens to dogs over and over. Um, some of the kittens got more scared of the dog every time the dogs, they saw the dog, which is sensitization. So they just, they basically practiced being scared um, and got better and better at being scared. Um, some of the kittens got used to the dog essentially and just kind of stopped reacting which is more on the habituation side and then some were desensitized to the dog where they didn't just kind of ignore the dog but they actually felt better about the dog and i don't quite remember how they measured that in the study um, but the same can happen for your dog and this is where this myth can get really tricky because sometimes exposure does make things better and sometimes your dog does need to just get out there and practice some and they will habituate 
or if you're lucky, desensitize. But desensitizing generally requires a nice, slow introduction. So that would be more like taking your dog out on a parallel walk. That's exposure. Um, and Or oh, Sarah Strubbing calls it dog park TV, where you go hang out near a dog park and watch the dogs move past. That is exposure, and it is likely to make things better. But it's very different from just chucking your dog into the center of the dog park and hoping that they just kind of figure it out. Because that is a really great situation for sensitization, where they actually learn that, holy cow, other dogs are really scary. This is awful. I'm going to get worse. Oh, and, and that's that's not really a conscious decision. Um, that's the amygdala speaking, not the prefrontal thing, cortex. Oh, sorry. I was going to say one thing that's important yeah. to consider um, is that the idea of chucking the dog into the situation, another way in which it can make things worse is it removes the dog's choice. So anytime an animal feels like they don't have a choice or they don't have agency in the situation, that's going to be more stressful for them. And that stress is going to be associated with the context, um, with the dogs being around, with the people being around, with the children or whatever it is that you're aiming to help them feel better about. They're going to associate with like, well, I get shoved into this situation and I don't have any control over it, um, which is only going to make it worse in their minds. So I think that's another piece of it that's really important to remember is you should always give your dogs a choice to approach something that they're worried about and not try to lure them towards it or force them towards it or trick them into it or whatever. Yeah. Good call with choice. Um, so this one is for Ursa. <clears throat> so can my dog tell if someone is untrustworthy? Ooh, this one, <laughs> I hope I don't get hate mail for this one because I feel like there are going to be people out there that, <laughs> that will not be convinced otherwise, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, we hear this one a lot. My dog is a really good judge of character. Um, you know, it's interesting because I also see a lot of dogs that are really bad judges of character. <laughs> um, <laughs> If, if that's the framework, if the framework is, um, and I think generally what people are talking about is my dog will growl or um, avoid or be cautious around certain people and it's because they can sense that they're bad people. Well, again, you know, I see a lot of dogs that growl and are cautious around literally everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's likely we have no evidence to suggest that dogs are able to sense if someone is inherently good or bad or inherently malicious. Um, and more likely what's happening is that dogs are reading people's body language in some cases. So I know that there are cases where, um, you know, someone's acting erratically or being threatening or being odd and dog reacts to that. They're looking at the body language of the person. It's off. And so the dog is going, hmm, there's something weird about that situation. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's that the dog hasn't been socialized to understand that most people are not a threat. Yeah. Um, so if they come across a person that acts a little bit differently than what they're used to, um, you know, that triggers that defensive reaction where they're going, Ooh, this is weird and different. I'm just going to send a little signal that I want some space from this person. Um, yeah. A couple so examples I've heard of dogs that um there was a, a dog that someone told me a story about that um was really great with people if they came in the front door but if they came in the back door he would be really upset about it um 
And they had had an experience where someone had broken in um, and they were like, oh, my gosh, he knew. And it was like, well, I think your dog just was responding to how abnormal it was to have someone come in that back door. Um, and a lot of times this can also be something where the dogs like stress is traveling down the leash. Like if I'm out at night and I see someone with, a, you know, a big hoodie on who's like walking directly towards me when there's no reason for them to be. I'm probably holding my breath. I probably reek of stress hormones and I'm pulling up on the leash. And, you know, of course, my dog is going to be weirded out by that situation, um, whether it's his perception of that person being weird or his kind of feeding off of my own fear in that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it's not him understanding a, 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 and how to judge character. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or intent. Yeah. 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 Okay. Next one is for Kayla. So we constantly hear this one where it's like, yeah, so my dog is barking and lunging at other people on leash because he's trying to protect me. Yeah, so, she's so protective of me. So protective of me, um, protective of the house, protective of all things, right? And so what do you think about that? It's probably not the case. Um, I have not personally yet seen one where I would say, okay, yeah, this does seem like your dog is being protective of you. I, you know, territoriality around the house is certainly a factor in a lot of cases. Um, Resource guarding can be a factor where the dog is struggling to allow other people or other dogs to approach his or her favorite person. Um, But that is not generally what we're seeing when we're seeing leash-based reactivity. That is generally more frustration. Oh my God, I want to go see that person so badly. (laughs) Or I want to go chase that thing that's moving by so badly and I can't get to it. So I'm going to scream. Um, Or I'm scared of that thing. I know I'm on a leash and I know we're on the sidewalk, so I'm going to have to get close to it. So I'm going to bark at it to get it to stay away. Um, Those are much, much, much more common when I do see kind of human based resource guarding, you know, um, where the dog is actually kind of trying to prevent other people or dogs from approaching his or her favorite person there what you it tends to happen in really close quarters and it's not usually a huge display so my own dog will actually do this um particularly with other dogs that he doesn't like much um he's fine with his buddies sitting on my lap but if he already is not a huge fan of a dog and then that dog tries to climb in my lap he doesn't bark and lunge and throw a temper tantrum he comes over and stands really stiffly next to that dog (laughs) and stares at him and then kind of shoves his head in between us and we'll start baring teeth i mean obviously at that point i've interrupted it and stopped it yeah Um, but it looks really different and then yes territoriality can be part of things as i've already said um but that's uh not always that's generally not the case when you're out on a walk with your dog and even in a lot of cases where the dogs are fence fighting it's not protecting the house. It's barrier frustration. Um, and, you know, it's hard because we can't ask the dogs. But I would say I, I have not yet seen a case of like a dog being truly protective of his owner. I do know that can happen. Um, we actually, unfortunately, have um, uh, some pretty unsavory puppy mill um Belgian Malinois um, and kind of a problem with uh, a really unsavory uh, protection training, quote unquote, company up here that shall not be named. Um, And some of those dogs, I'm sure, that are poorly bred Malinois that have been poorly trained for protection work could be somewhere in this category. But unless your dog has been trained for protection work, I would say this is very unlikely to be the problem. 
I would say that the protectiveness factors in where the dog is trying to protect themselves from what they see as a threat. Ah, I meant to say that. <laughs> I got too distracted. That's yes, okay. Go on. I'm, I've got you. <laughs> um, that's it. I think the protectiveness factor is when a dog perceives um, something as a threat and is trying to defend, get space for themselves. And, you know, th- there may be a thought in their head about like in my person, but I don't think that the dog's train of thought is that looks like a threat. I'm going to put myself in harm's way to protect my person. I think it's, oh my gosh, that's a threat. I want it to get away from me and, and, you know, I need space from it. Um, I don't think it's, it's very human centric like, and like self-centered. I, to right? think that it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. pretty egoic. And it's also like, what is even, what is per, like, if we're going to operationalize things, like what does protective right. even mean? It doesn't actually like, it's the same way as saying like, my dog is stubborn. My dog is doing right. things out of spite, which is the next it's one. A label. Uh, you know, it's just a label. Like we don't, like, I don't know if your dog's protecting you. All we know is that your dog's barking and lunging at the site of A, B, and C trigger. And we want to modify that. Like, right. it's like, it's yeah. way more simplified, but our brains are designed to build stories around like why things are mm-hmm. happening. So, yeah. And point. I do know there, there have, I, I know, I think it's Michael Shikashio at the IABC conference did a talk that was really interesting where one of his case studies was a woman that had had, I think she had been mugged um, and her dog started showing a lot of reactivity oh, after that. Like and the reactivity this. actually didn't end up getting resolved until the woman had kind of worked through some therapy. I think that um, was Dr. Pockle. Well, oh, was it Dr. Pockle? I think oh, it shoot. was, yeah. Um, one of the great men we have in this yes. industry. One of them we're talking about. <laughs> Sometimes they do co-talks. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe that was it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway, uh, Dr. Pockle, if it was you and I attributed it to Michael, um, you guys can... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure they're fine. <laughs> yeah, you guys seem like you get along okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like there are cases like that, but again, yep. I haven't seen one. Yes, I remember that. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. that is like, that's quite amazing. Yeah. And that uh, that goes back to what we were just talking about with the dog telling that someone was untrustworthy. It was stress from the woman traveling down the leash in a pretty extreme way, in a very understandable way. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I still don't know if we can say that dog was being protective, you know? Yeah, because I'm just like, she wasn't, an- what were the antecedents that, that, that you know, she, how she was feeling? And then... I don't then think we can say that dog was taking tightening. his owner's emotional stress into account and trying to protect her feelings and her, you know, from something she was scared of. I think the dog was like, oh, my God, she's stressed. Now I'm stressed. Yes. Yes. So. Okay. So moving on to our next one, which I sort of gave a little preview to. So Ursa, um, I wound up going out for dinner and I was longer than anticipated. And so when I came back, my dog um, peed all over the house out of spite. What do you think about that? (laughs) Okay. Well, first I'm going to say operationalized spite. (laughs) (laughs) So if we're talking about spite, what we generally mean is... And we're thinking from, a, again, a very human-centric perspective of someone did something I don't like, so I'm going to do something to get back at them um, to mm-hmm. either make myself feel better, to teach them a lesson, to prevent it from happening again, mm-hmm. et cetera. Would you guys agree with that yes. description? Yeah, that's good. Okay. So um, I always like to say we have no evidence <laughs> that dogs feel spite the way we understand it. Um, unfortunately dog brains are a little bit of a black box. We know they work a lot like ours, but we, 
We don't have any evidence yet to assume that dogs understand more complex emotions that require a lot of forethought or premeditation, um, which spite does. In order to experience spite, you have to say, that person deliberately did something to me to hurt me or to make me feel bad. And I'm going to do this because I know it's going to make them feel bad in, re- in exchange as revenge. Um, so that would require the dog to, to assume that their owner did something intentionally to hurt them. Um, and then to have an understanding of, well, I'm going to do this because it's going to hurt them because I know they don't like it when this happens. And I think that's a leap. I think that violates the law of parsimony for one thing. Um, it's not the simplest explanation. Um, and I also think that it, it, um, isn't in line with what we know about what, what motivates dogs to do behavior. So if your dog digs in the trash, it's most likely because either they enjoy digging in the trash because it smells and tastes good to them, or they're stressed and digging in the trash relieves that stress and it makes them feel better or they're bored and digging in the trash gives them something to do. Um, those are all much more simple explanations for why did, why my dog did this when I did this. Um, and you know, it, it, it can be a direct result of your behavior of what you did without involving spite. So I was gone for longer than my dog can handle that caused them to be anxious. They destroyed the trash or destroyed my couch or whatever as an outlet for that anxiety. And this also is, it's not all about you, right? (laughs) Um, Look at, look at the dog, look at what the dog is telling you. And, and it's always followed by, well, if they didn't know it was bad, why did they look guilty when I walked in? (laughs) And, and so usually what ends up coming out is, well, I walked in, I saw the trash and then I turned and looked at my dog and they were cowering. And I, you know, I think that to assume that your dog doesn't see that you're angry or notice your body language changing when you see the trash or the couch destroyed um, is just, again, not, not thinking about like things from the dog's perspective. So of course, if you walk in and you see that all of your couch cushions have been cannibalized and you turn to your dog with a look on your face, they're going to go, oh shit. I did something wrong and they're going to immediately switch into that appeasement mode of like, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Whatever it is. I see you're upset. I'm really sorry. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll even get clients that say, well, but they knew before I even, I noticed what they had done. And generally if I, if I tease out more information, there's a history of it. So the dog starts to understand that, um, when the context includes, um, chewed up couch pillows and the owner coming home, it means that they're going to get scolded or reprimanded. So they preemptively go into that appeasement. They go, Oh boy, the couch cushions are chewed up. Owners coming home. That always means that I'm going to get yelled at or fussed at or whatever. My dog Um, does that. I've gotten to the point where I can now, like if I come home and Barley dives under the bed, (laughs) um, there are times where I haven't found what he got into for for weeks (laughs) or ever. Um, but he, he, I mean, but he's not guilty. He's just scared. I'm going to scream at him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually just found two holes in my backpacking backpack where he dug out his, his backpacking treats that, I mean, I, I think that's from like a month ago now, but I just found them this week. 
Um, and I, I do remember now he dove under the bed when I came home. Um, and I didn't know, I was like, there's no trash on the floor, no right. dishes. Like what yeah. on earth did he get what into? He get into? Been, okay. Yeah. He's just weird. You know, like I know he was right and I was wrong. Yeah. And we, and at the end of the day, I think one of the most important things is that it's like, we can argue all day long because we can't ask a dog about mm-hmm. their motivations. We have to assume mm-hmm. based on what we're observing about their behavior and what we know about their brains. At the end of the day, I think it's important to say, is this assumption helpful? So is it helpful to assume that the dog is doing things out of spite? Does that enhance our training? Does that enhance our relationship? Um, Does it give us any information that helps us prevent it in the future? And I think the answer is always no. Like, no. Because if you assume your dog is doing something out of spite, what are you going to do? Escalate? Well, now I'm going to now I'm going to destroy his stuff just to show him you know (laughs) someone's just like in the toy bin like you know what i'm gonna show you (laughs) i'm gonna rip up the lammy toy (gasps) right like and and, you know being a parent has really helped me with this too because like especially with young children you know my son's five and it's really easy to be like "Mm, you little brat you did that because you knew it was gonna be and like kids don't do that like maybe yes in in some ways, especially as they get a little bit older and they start to understand. wait till adolescence. <laughs> yeah, but like really young kids, like two, three-year-old kids, they just do stuff because they do, like that's what they feel in the moment. And, mm-hmm. um, and to assign blame, like uh, to assign a motivation of spite or guilt or whatever is not really helpful. It just um, escalates the emotions in the situation. And as the adult or in the training relationship, or, you know, the pet relationship as the caretaker, um, you know, we're supposed to be the ones that are more mature and able to control our emotions and able to do things that improve the welfare of the beings that we're caring for. And I think that assuming bad intentions doesn't doesn't meet that goal. Yeah, doesn't absolutely. meet that mission, so to speak. For me, at least as a parent and a and a pet guardian, um, it doesn't do any good to say like, mm-hmm. "Well, my dog was just trying to piss me off." Um, what does do good is to say, "Why did my dog?" why did they actually do that? Like, what was the antecedent? Um, what can I do to prevent it in the future? And how can I support my dog so that they don't feel the need to do that? Like if it is anxiety or boredom or frustration, how can I give them an outlet for that? That's more productive. That doesn't result in my stuff being trashed. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, That was a hopefully shorter episode by requests from our listeners since uh, I guess we like to talk and our episodes are a little (laughs) bit long. So uh, we hope that that satiates and uh, you enjoyed that podcast episode. So I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward in Boulder, Colorado, and you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. I'm Ursa Agri. I'm a co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. And you can find us online at canismajortraining.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt of journeydogtraining.com. You can find Journey Dog Training by just typing that into Google. Woohoo. Yeah. Is that how you do it? (laughs) That's how I do it. (laughs) Or DuckDuckGo. They've been advertising (laughs) on all of my podcasts lately. Um. (laughs) So before we go, please be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. You can also contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. 
We'd love to hear from you. Our theme music is called Funny Song and it's provided royalty free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And lastly, our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks so much, guys. 